0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome uh, to New Valley, everyone. So glad that you're with us. My name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so great to have you guys. Uh, Every time we have the kids sing like that, like we just did, it reminds me of a time when we first moved here as a family. We moved here from Cincinnati, my wife and I and our three boys, and our boys were five, three, and two and we would visit different churches because we didn't have a church. We were here to plant one from scratch. And so we were visiting uh, all these different churches. We showed up at a church for the very first time during Christmas season. Uh, at a church in Ahwatukee. And uh, we checked them into the kids area and everything was great. We said goodbye. We'll see you after church. And then we got into the service and they said, and this morning the kids are singing in church. And then all of a sudden here come our boys who've never been to church here, uh, have no idea what songs they're singing. And they're all three just looking at us like, we're going to kill you when this is over. like (laughs) You are so done. So (laughs) that was fun. Uh, This morning uh, I've got a, Bad cold I'm dealing with. How many of you guys have the same cold? I think we're all sharing the germs, so welcome to the cold. It's great. And we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 together. We are studying theophanies during this Advent season. The word Advent means arrival or appearance, um, and we're looking at theophanies, which is our appearances of God. So the word theos means God, and then phania meaning uh, to appear. So these are appearances of God in the Old Testament. But of course, we're looking at these because these all foreshadow in some way the coming of Christ ultimately to us and the incarnation of Jesus, which is the ultimate theophany and of course is what we're celebrating at Christmas. Uh, Today we'll look at Isaiah 6 where the prophet saw the Lord as a vision when he went to the temple. Let's read together from Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. is me, for I am, a, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to look first at God's glory and the sense of a greater fear that we need in our life, a greater fear. Isaiah was a prophet. Um, You probably know that if you have a church background at all. And when we think of prophets, we tend to think of things uh, like prophecy, like predicting the future. But most of the time, that's very little of what a prophet actually did. They were the mouthpiece of God for the people of God. And so they would speak God's word to God's people and write God's word as well. King Uzziah was, uh, started his reign well and honored God, loved God, walked with God, and the nation prospered. But like many kings in the Old Testament, he did not finish well. And after 52 years of reigning, he died. He died. And so the king was dead, and Isaiah went into the temple, and like all of uh, Israel at this time, or Judah in the southern kingdom, they are mourning, and they're fearful because this king has reigned for 52 years, and they've prospered under him, and now uh, he's dead, and he goes into the temple, and he has this amazing vision. The temple was enormous, and the train of God's robe. Of course, in a sense, this is a vision, right? God does not have a literal robe. God is a spirit, God the Father. But the the train of God's robe fills the temple in this vision, and he sees seraphim. And I like to say that seraphim are probably like um, navy seals of the, uh, the angel creatures, and because they are fiery creatures, th- their name literally means fire. They have six wings, but only two are used for flight. Two are covering their face, Two are covering their feet, and this is to protect them literally from the glory of God that is shining upon them in this vision, and with two they fly. And as you just heard from this passage, they're calling out one to another. And in a sense, I love this because it gives us a vision of what worship, what church might look like someday as we gather in the new kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth, as the angels are crying out to one another back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty the whole earth is full of his glory. What does it mean that God is holy? Holy means to separate or to cut or to set apart. He's utterly different than us. And in the Bible, holiness is the only attribute of God that is mentioned like this three times, holy, holy, holy. And there there's no punctuation marks in the Hebrew in in Uh, In Hebrew or in Greek, in the New Testament or the Old Testament. And so this repetition served as an exclamation mark. God is holy. This isn't just one of his attributes, it's the sum of his entire character. It's his moral purity, his separateness, his otherness from the rest of creation. He's holy. But it talks about his glory too. The whole earth is filled with God's glory. Glory, what does that mean? It means weight and it means heaviness. It also is associated with brightness and with splendor. And the word glory is used to express in the Greek importance and honor, majesty and fame, good reputation, and so forth. We all glorify something. If, if you're a, a Christian, if you're religious, if you're, you know, if you're a follower of God, or if you, if you follow some other religion, you obviously glorify God or or. or whoever you're putting your hope in. But the truth is, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not someone who has a faith, you glorify, you also are into glory and glorification. We all glorify that which we love, that which we hunger, that's what we, that which we desire for in life. We all have hunger. But one of the biggest problems in our life is that we often glorify the wrong things in an ultimate sense. We are often on a glory search for things that can't, fully satisfy. But we want glory. We long for glory. I'm going to share a little bit about myself and and divulge something that is a little, I don't know, one of my favorite movies. It's very deep, and it's called Nacho Libre uh, by Jack Black. And it's about, thank you. You and I could be good friends. That's good. So Nacho Libre, it's about this priest or this monk uh, in Mexico, and he is uh, tired of his priestly Duties and he's longing for a greater glory. And he meets this other man who he's inviting into this adventure of becoming a luchador, a professional wrestler. And he says, Don't you want a little taste of the glory? And to see what it tastes like, right? He's longing for this glory. He wants more glory. We're all in search of more glory. But ultimately, only God can be the thing that glorifies, ultimately, that fills us, ultimately. We're into lesser glories, though. And one of the main things that we glory in or that we glorify is the approval of other people. One of the things we're searching for in life, one of the things that we're hungry for, some of the things that we take a good thing and elevate it into an ultimate thing and it gets twisted and it becomes bad. Usually all of the idols, all the things that we bow to that are not God begin as good things. They're good things that we make an ultimate thing, but it was not meant to be an ultimate thing. It is good uh, to be connected and loved by people. It is good to be approved by people. It is good to be in relationship with people. It's good to do well at your work and to do well and to succeed and so forth. But if you need people's approval too much and it becomes too big for you, it becomes an ultimate thing. It becomes an idol. The Bible calls this the fear of man. And we fear others. We fear men and women. Not just when people are coming after us or we feel like we're going to be attacked, but when we want their approval too much. Many of us have grown up longing, like wanting our parents' approval, maybe having never received it. Never having a mom or a dad speak in your life and say, I love you, I approve of you, you did it, I'm proud of you. You're mine, you're my beloved son or daughter. Some of you had parents pass away, and those words may never ever come to you in this life And so we long, we search, we want to be approved. In Proverbs 29, 25, it says this, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So we desire other people's approval, approval, but it can become too big for us. And the fear of others has many symptoms in our lives. You may feel peer pressure. And the truth is, you don't have to be a kid to feel peer pressure. You you feel this pressure to do and be accepted. And so you may say something you would never otherwise say. You may do something you might never otherwise do. Maybe you overcommit because you can't say no to people. You're always volunteering. You're always signing up. I'll do this. I'll do this. You don't have any boundaries. You can't say no. You overcommit because you can't say no because you want people's approval too much. Maybe you're afraid of the truth coming out. If I'm exposed, if anyone really knew my actual self, if anyone saw within me, you know, they would reject me. They would never approve of me. Maybe you tell small lies to make yourself look better. Having to get approval. You compare yourself to others. We all do. You find it very difficult to confront others because they might reject you. And and if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you have a hard time sharing your faith, maybe, because it's like, I don't want to be rejected. People have a hard time with this. What is the way out? Tim Chester says in the book, You Can Change, the answer to the fear of man is the fear of God. And this is what's going on in this story. And not not fear like we normally think of fear, but in terms of glory and awe and splendor and wonder. What is going on is this man, Isaiah, goes to church full of fear. His king for 52 years is dead. He has the fear of man, and all of Judah does, the southern kingdom of Israel, they're living in fear because the king is dead, and now what? Now what will happen in his absence? The fear of man, they're putting their hope in a political leader, like he's going to provide, and now he's dead, what will we do? And then he goes into the temple, and he has a vision of God himself, and in that vision he realizes, no, this is the king. This is the Lord of Lords who can never die, who can never pass away, who just is. He is the great I am. And he gets a greater fear of God and then a lesser fear of what man can do or not do. The answer is to have a greater fear of God. And the next thing I want us to see this morning from our passage is this, that God's glory means to lead us to repentance, to humility, It says in Isaiah 6, 5, this is Isaiah speaking. I said, woe is me, as he's having this experience of the glory of God. Woe is me, for I'm lost, and I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If anyone in this part of Israel could have boasted like, I have got it going on, I have a righteousness to myself, I am good, I'm basically a good person, and could have argued like, you know, God should accept me on the basis of my goodness, you would think it might be Isaiah. After all, he was the one person during his lifetime that God said, you will be my voice, you will be my mouthpiece to my people. But he doesn't look to his own righteousness. He doesn't look to his own goodness. Instead, he says, woe is me. It says that the seraphim are calling out to one another and that the sound of their voices is causing the doorposts and the threshold to shake. And the temple is this enormous structure. So I want you to imagine you're in this huge building, this huge hall, and it's just shaking with God's glory. And smoke is filling it. And God is saying, God is holy. He is awesome. He is separate. He is different from me and I am not holy. I cannot stand under the weight of this. Raise your hand high if you love Disneyland. Okay, I'm looking. All right, so I'm about to offend all of you <laughs> because I am among the people who is trying to get in as late as possible. And to leave as early as possible. So my, my family and most people I'm associated with, they want to arrive as the gates open. And I'm always trying to negotiate, can we just push that back just a little bit? And they want to stay until t- the fireworks are going off, right? That's what you do, right? But that's not what I want to do. I want to get in around 10 and leave maybe around 2 and have lunch in between, right? That's, that's what I'm about at Disneyland. But there is this one ride that I do love at Disneyland and it would keep me going back besides my love for my family and my children. And it's, it is the Indiana Jones Temple of Doom ride. I think that's, maybe it's not Temple of Doom, but it's the Indiana Jones ride, right? So, And I, every time I do it, and it's like, because it's the, one of the few things I like there, is I go on it a lot. And like, I will say to myself, like, this is real, okay? I'm about to experience a boulder that will nearly crush me to death. And I want to just enter into that. It's going to happen. Oh, no, it doesn't happen. Like, so... My heart really doesn't even start racing that much because I know it's not real, but I try to enter into the, the adventure of it, and the truth is we all have to kind of manufacture a little adventure in our life, some manufactured doom, manufacture awe. Some of you are crazy enough to jump out of perfectly good airplanes to, to have this experience, right? Some of you tether, you know, bungee cords yourself and jump off bridges and do crazy stuff in order to have this crazy experience of like, wow, and awe, and splendor, but Isaiah is not having to manufacture this. He doesn't have to go to Disneyland. He is in the temple of God, and God shows up. And you get the, the, the feeling that like he's not even, he doesn't know that's going to happen. So imagine you come to church, and there's God. And Isaiah cries, woe is me. And in the Old Testament, whenever woe, the word woe is used, it's a term of judgment. God, woe to Israel because God's judgment is about to fall. He says, I'm lost. Again, Isaiah is a man of God. He is the prophet of God, yet he says, I'm lost. I'm ruined, and in the King James, it says, I'm undone, and I like that word. I'm coming unglued. I'm coming apart at the seams. It's so descriptive, undone. It's like he's being unraveled. He's being exposed. All of his motives, all of his self-orientation is being laid before a holy God. And that is a sure sign of God's presence in your life as a a person individually. And it's a sure sign of God's presence in your life as a people, as a nation. When we talk about revival, if you you study the the revivals in history, in church history, always with true revival, not just some manifestation of some gifting or something like that, but in in a true revival throughout history, what happens is God's people are humbled And there's true humility, and there's true repentance. How do you know if you've really had an encounter with God in his holiness, personally? Repentance. Humility. And one of the first things that's going to come out of your heart is, woe is me. I'm lost. How could I stand before a holy God? I am a man of unclean lips. Why unclean lips? Well, I mean, he is the mouthpiece of Israel. He is God's voice to Israel, and he's saying, I don't deserve to be the mouthpiece of God to my people. I have unclean lips. I'm a man who curses. I have sin in my heart, and that comes out of my mouth. I'm a man, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live with a bunch of people who are people of unclean lips. Woe is me. Have you come to the place in your life Where you're able to say in your heart and mean it, God is God, and I am not God. How do you know if you've really had an encounter with this living God? Uh, The excuses stop. Well, yes, I blow it from time to time, and yes, I'm a little sinful, but I'm not nearly as sinful as them. I'm not nearly as sinful as her, him, whole groups of people in society. They're the bad people. I'm the good person generally. I mean, God's got to be somewhat impressed right with me. No, Isaiah, the prophet of God says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. I'm coming undone. I am lost. The excuses stop and the judgment of other people stops. You look yourself square in the face and say, this is my problem. G.K. Chesterton once wrote an editorial in London and said, what is the wrong with the world today? I am, G.K. Chesterton. The finger pointing stops. I'm not, not as bad as that person. The self-justification stops. Isaiah says, woe is me. Have you come to the place in your life where you say, God really is holy, and I'm not holy. And that presents a problem. And if you have, then you know you are on the right path. Because until you get to this place of great humility, you're really not on the road to coming to know the living God. This is essential. It's a first thing. It's, it's foundational. C.S. Lewis wrote, Now, what was the sort of hole or emptiness or problem with mankind had gotten himself into? He had tried to set up on his own to behave as if he belonged to himself. I am the captain of my own destiny. I determine the rules. I will make up what is right and wrong. In other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. We are rebels, he says, who must lay down our arms laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you're sorry, realizing that you've been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor. That is the way out of our problem. The process of surrender, this movement, full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. Repentance is no fun at all, he says. It's something much Harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all of the self conceit, all the self will that we've been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. The reality is, friends, if we would look at ourselves and our motives and our desires, you kind of realize that every day when we get out of bed, we are on a journey trying to get everything we can for ourselves. For the most part when we get up, we have such a self-orientation that we are trying to do everything we can just for ourselves, and God comes in our life and says, you've got it all wrong. Even, even Isaiah, in the presence of a holy God, says, I'm undone. I'm a sinner. I need help. But thanks be to God for the next point, God's glory and his amazing grace. In verses six through seven, it says this, and imagine, imagine this, what this was like. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal he had taken with tongs from the altar. (coughs) And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This angel, this fiery being takes this, this coal from the burning fire of the altar and he puts it on his lips right at the point where... Isaiah says, this is my greatest problem. I'm a man of unclean lips. And the, the altar, from the altar, this angel touches him right there, right where his brokenness is, right where his sin is, right where his rebellion is against God. That's where the angel touches him and atones for his sin, pays for his sin, cleanses him from his sin, purifies him. Isaiah experiences God as he is in his holiness and God... And then Isaiah experiences God and his grace and his mercy and his kindness. And one of the things we say around here all the time is this. The more you come to know the living God and the more you study the Bible, you're going to see two things simultaneously. On the one hand, you're far more sinful than you ever realized if you really peer into the scriptures, if you really begin to follow Jesus, if you begin to see how altogether good and righteous he is, you begin to have a greater sense, not a lesser sense. I'm talking about the more you follow Jesus, not like just to become a Christian. I'm talking 10, 15, 100 years into following Jesus. That would be a long time, but a really long time of following God, you find yourself to be more, more and more in need of his forgiveness, not less. But you also see simultaneously at the very same time, and this would never be possible without the saving grace of Jesus Christ, that you are more loved and accepted than you ever dreamed could be possible. You are more broken and fallen and sinful than you know. But in Jesus, read the Bible, this is true. You are more loved and accepted and atoned for and forgiven and your sin has been removed than you could ever Dream possible. <clears throat> in this theophany, this vision, this is appearance of God in the temple and his angels, <clears throat> we see such a beautiful picture of the incarnation of Jesus. It's Christmas. We're here to celebrate the incarnation. It says in 1 John 2 My little children, I'm writing these things so that you don't sin, but John. If any of you sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Any of you guys sin? (laughs) Any of you guys not sin, even for an hour? The answer is no. If any of you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the living coal from the altar. He is the one who touches our lips. Isaiah had a vision where he got his sin forgiven, but Jesus Christ, he is the coal, he is the purifier, he is the atoning one that provides salvation, purification, forgiveness, not only for Isaiah or for you or for me, but for the whole world he is the propitiation for our sins and not only ours, but for the sins in the entire world. This is what Christmas is about. Jesus came to live his life, a perfect life, a righteous life, but Jesus also came, he was born, in essence, to die, to be a propitiation for our sins, <clears throat> to be an atoning sacrifice for us. And finally, and very briefly, I want to, one more point. God's glory and a great mission. Isaiah in verse 6-8, he says this, And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. When you experience the holiness of God, in his splendor, in his awe, in his beauty, his glory, his holiness, you're ready to be sent. When you experience the atoning work of God and and heard his voice say, your sins are atoned for, that you're forgiven, then you're in a great place to say to God, here am I, send me. And normally when we, we hear that, we think of a missionary, we think of somebody saying, here am I. I'm ready. I will go to the farthest place on earth that doesn't know about you. I will go to the unreached place. I will sacrifice all, and I will go. But today, I actually want to bring this down right where we are, right this minute. Here we are today. And so far, I've not experienced God show up. I have not seen any robes in here yet uh, or tra- you know, trains of whole robes. But I do believe that the Holy Spirit is with us. And he's here because God's people have gathered here, and his word is here. And so he's present with us, and I, I pray that we've experienced his holiness in some as we've sung and as we've been together and heard his word, and, and we've gotten a glimpse of his glory, and we're experiencing his grace. And so I pray, church, that we would say to one another, here am I, send me. And then rather than say, like, I'll go to Africa, I'll go to Japan, and of course that would be awesome if some of you said that, but even more so, what about saying, here am I, send me as I go to Kohl's today to finish up my shopping, right? Or into my house today, it's going to be really hard. I've got a cold, I'm tired, or this or that, and I've got all this stress and strain. But here am I, Lord, send me into these places as I minister to people in my home, in my neighborhood, with extended family that may be coming into town or that you're traveling to. Lord, here am I. Send me. Even right now, even today, Lord, send send me as a representation of your grace, your mercy. And may I, in a sense, be a theophany. Not a literal appearance of God, but friends, don't we have the Holy Spirit? Not a force, the person of God in us, the person of God, the third person of the Trinity in our lives. Here am I. Send me. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you and we praise you for this vision that Isaiah had that we got to think about today and get a taste of your glory which supersedes and overcomes anything else that we might see as glorious in this life. Please forgive us for all the ways in which we find lesser things more glorious than you and we pray God that we would have a taste of you more and more to see you in your splendor and your holiness but to also see that our Sin has been atoned for, and then send us, Father, into this broken world. In Jesus' name, amen.